take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I want to return to our study through 1 John, which we've been away from the last couple of Sundays. But we've covered three chapters. We've got two more to go, chapters 4 and 5. And you'll remember that in the very last verses of chapter 3, the Apostle John describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit who communicates the truth to our hearts that we indeed belong to God. It's God the Holy Spirit who places us into the body of Christ. It's God the Holy Spirit who has come to take up residence in our lives as believers. And it's the role of the Spirit to make the presence and power of the Godhead experiential, both in creation as well as in the lives of God's people. You, you think about how electricity brings living, functional reality to your appliances. You can have the shiniest, nicest, most expensive new appliances in your kitchen. But I'm telling you, if they're not plugged into the electricity in your house, then you have nothing but a shiny piece of furniture that has no functional reality. Well, what is it that brings power and makes the person of God so real, the life of God that comes to take up residence within you as a believer, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's what John says in verse 24 of the third chapter, by this we know that God abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given to us. So it's the Holy Spirit who assures us of the genuineness of our faith by means of his inner witness. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter eight, where he says that it's the Spirit himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. So our ultimate assurance as Christians, and that's something John is dealing with throughout this letter, it depends upon and is given by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what he's saying at the end of chapter 3. But this is going to bring up another issue and John is going to continue his battle with the false teachers of his day, a battle for the minds and hearts of those within the churches of Asia Minor. Many of those who had divided the churches were also appealing to the witness of the Spirit in support of their false claims. So we come to chapter 4. The question that we should consider is, is this question. It's a question posed by David Jackman and his comments and his commentary on 1 John 4. But it's a good question, listen to this. What's to be done when different ideas are being asserted by those who claim to speak from the same authority? What do you do when someone who also claims to be a Christian or someone also claims to speak for God comes along and makes a truth claim that you know is not in keeping with God's revealed will as found in his written word. It's contrary to his word. How do you deal with that issue? Well, John is going to tell his readers here that we need to be discerning as believers in order to know the difference between what is true and what is false. So notice what he says there beginning with verse 1 in chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you were from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Aren't you grateful for that verse right there? Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I want to speak from this subject this morning, spiritually discerning Christianity. Within this passage, the Apostle John calls upon his readers to cultivate a spiritually discerning kind of faith. And so he's addressing this issue of spiritual discernment. Now, I'm convinced that discernment may, in fact, be one of the most important tools that the Christian has in his or her tool chest. And yet, at the same time, it may be one of the most overlooked and often lacking. Uh, Douglas Webster uh, is someone who has spoken to this issue. He wrote a book about 30 years ago that he called Selling Jesus, in which he offers keen insight about the lack of spiritual discernment in so much of the American church growth movement. Listen to what he says in particular about spiritual discernment and the lack thereof within the church. He says, American Christianity is increasingly tolerant of any and all methods as long as they bring numerical results. We virtually eliminated discernment of the will of God, and sadly, that's the equivalent of losing the keys of the kingdom. Anything goes as long as it's defended for the sake of evangelism or promotes attendance growth. The single most decisive support for new methods is popularity. If people are buying, then the product must be good. Public opinion has become an arbiter of truth, dictating the terms of acceptability according to the marketplace. The sovereignty of the audience makes serious, prayerful thinking about the will of God unnecessary because opinions are formed on the basis of taste rather than careful biblical conviction and thoughtful theological reflection. Now listen to this last statement he makes. It really got my attention. He said, Americans easily become slaves of slogans when discernment is reduced to ratings. I mean, that really encapsulates where we are at this particular cultural moment in our time. Americans easily become slaves of slogans. Truth has become whatever feels good, sounds good, whatever brings instant results. And yet the Apostle John is saying something totally different here in this passage of Scripture. And he's saying that discernment is important because deception is abundant. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if that was true of the 21st century, uh, of the first century world, don't you think that it's also true of the 21st century world, which it is? And so let me tell you, this is a very important subject. And so for that reason, I want to break it down into two parts. I'll cover part one this morning, and then we'll come back to this same issue next week. 
what it means to have a spiritually discerning faith. But let me go ahead and give you three main headings that we find in these verses, and I'll just limit my comments to the first heading, and then we'll, we'll go to lunch. The first thing that he mentions is this. There's a directive to be obeyed. And he explains that in verse number one. He says that there's a deception to be avoided. And he explains this in verses two and three. And then there's a distinction to be understood. And this is what he says in verses four, five, and six. So those are the three major headings. Look at just that first heading though. The directive to be obeyed. John begins this section by expressing his concern for the spiritual welfare of his readers. Once more, he's referring to them as beloved, a term of affection. It's out of his deep love for the flock that he calls upon them to be spiritually discerning in their Christian life. And you will notice that the language of verse 1 is imperative language. It's the language of command, emphasizing our pressing need to be discerning when it comes to the ideas that we may be enticed to embrace. And so he's explicitly calling upon believers to be careful with what they believe, to not buy in to every idea or whim of doctrine that they hear. And so you look at his directive here in verse number one, and you can divide it into at least two parts. The first part is this, beloved, don't believe every spirit. He's saying there are certain things which we should not believe as the people of God. Now, oftentimes we miss this, but there are times in which unbelief is just as much an, in, an indicator of spiritual maturity as is belief. It's right for Christians to hold certain ideas with a sense of healthy suspicion. But you don't just buy into every idea that you hear. You don't embrace it because of the charismatic popular appeal of the person who's espousing that idea. John is saying, don't believe every spirit. They say, well, that language sounds somewhat strange to my ears. I mean, what is John saying when he's referring to spirit? Don't believe every spirit. It's the word pneuma in Greek. It's a word that he uses at least seven times through verse six. Two of those times, he uses it in reference to the Holy Spirit. And so this statement, don't believe every spirit, this is John's way of describing an utterance inspired by a spirit or a person inspired by a spirit. To say this another way, he's referring to those truth claims of certain individuals who claim to speak with authority. And our culture is full of those individuals who claim to speak with authority. Just because someone has an idea or offers a solution to some problem does not mean that those ideas are valid or in line with the truth. Chuck Swindoll says about this, he says, the fact is every human teacher, whether true or false in what they teach, is motivated and empowered by something that is often hidden behind the scenes. There's an underlying spirit behind so much of the ideologies that are popular in today's culture. This underlying spirit may be a spirit of wickedness or falsehood or self-interest, sensuality. Swindoll says it may be a spirit of righteousness, truth, love, holiness, but ultimately we know that teachers blown by the winds of error are under the influence of satanic deception whether they know it or not. And teachers driven by the winds of truth are empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And so for that reason, believers need to be discerning. We can't afford to be gullible when it comes to doctrine. If I were to say this another way, there's a need for a certain type of discrimination when it comes to the ideas which inform our worldview. Now, I know that word discrimination is a dirty word. It has negative connotation in today's vernacular, almost always negative when used. And we immediately associate that word discrimination with discriminating against someone on the basis of that person's skin color. And to be clear, that is an evil form of discrimination. It is evil. But it used to be that someone was said to be a discriminating person if they exercised keen judgment as far as ideas, what to believe, what not to believe, that kind of thing. And that's what the Apostle John is describing here. And see, all of this has kind of fallen out of favor in this secular age that we're now living in. This postmodern age where we're not supposed to draw any lines, we're not supposed to judge for any reason whatsoever. The only sin that people cry out against in our culture today is judging. One worldview is no better than any other worldview. But folks, listen, that is the spirit of this age, and unfortunately, it's crept into so much of the modern church. And if we're to be discerning, then we need to be able to discriminate between truth and error. We need to be able to distinguish between what's good and what's bad. This idea of making a clear distinction between true ideas and false ideas and that kind of thing. Whenever you see this, um, this word often translated in the New Testament, discern, it means to make a distinction. There are several Hebrew words in the Old Testament that mean the same thing. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. That word judgment there means taste. And so the psalmist is saying, God, give me good taste in terms of when it comes to ideas. Create within me, uh, produce within me your very thoughts. I want to value what you value. I want to uphold what you uphold. I want to abhor what you abhor. And so this kind of sound thinking needs to be characteristic of the people of God who know God. And that's what John is saying in this passage in 1 John 4. So discernment is this process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. The Apostle Paul expresses it this way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so the first part of John's directive is, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not buy into every idea that you hear which may sound persuasive, especially when you consider the personality of the person who is espousing that idea. But then notice the second part of his directive. He says this, test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That word test translates a word that means to carefully examine. It's this idea of making a critical examination of something to determine the genuineness of something. 
It's interesting to me that this was a word used in the first century world uh, to refer to the testing and the proving of certain metals to make sure they were without alloy and were genuine. You know what an alloy is? It's a mixture containing two or more metallic elements which are fused together or dissolved into one another whenever they're melted down. You want an example of this? Think about gold. You, you can mix in alloying additions to pure gold which will create a lesser carat value. <laughs> There's a big difference in 10 carat gold and 24 carat gold. Right, guys? You go into the jewelry store and you're looking at a piece of jewelry for your wife, a birthday, Valentine's Day, some special occasion. You tell the jeweler there, say, I'd like to see your gold necklaces or gold medallions or, you know, your gold bracelets. And immediately he pulls out the 24 karat stuff. And you're looking at a gold chain, 24 karat gold chain. You, you look at the price tag, it says $15,000. And you say, okay, you got anything else? How about some 10 karat gold? And then he shows you something that looks somewhat similar, but it's different because it's alloyed. It's a lesser carat, and the price tag on that is $150. And you say, sounds good. <laughs> That's the idea. Uh, you apply this to, to, to thinking, to worldview ideas. There are substitutes that masquerade as something valid that may hold up under the scrutiny of secular culture. The world may attach a certain value to these ideas and they may be held up as gold standard by the culture, but they fall apart when tested by means of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. And John says, don't believe every spirit. Instead, we need to test the spirits. And he's not calling for some kind of seance. You know, he's not saying you need to go consult a medium and do some magical mumbo-jumbo. That's not what he's saying here. He's using this term pneuma, spirit, telling us ultimately that ideologies are spiritual in nature. Whether it be the ideology associated with false religion or whether it be the ideology associated with the secular naturalist worldview that embraces evolution and buys into atheistic ideas. Ultimately, where do those ideologies come from? John says there's a spiritual source behind those ideas that blind men and women to the truth. The same thing's true with gender ideologies and sexual ideologies and political ideologies. Folks, there is truth and there are lies. And all truth is God's truth. And if that's so, if God is the source of all truth, then where do these counterfeits come from? Well, Jesus answers that, questions for us, that question when he says that Satan is the father of all lies. He's a liar and he is the origin and source of all lies. So these ideologies that people buy into, listen to me, which may even be popular with the majority culture. What makes something true? Is it, is it the fact that the whole culture embraces that idea? That's not what makes it true. That be the case, then what right did we have to go into the culture of Nazi Germany and say that it was a wicked thing to put six million Jews to death in gas chambers and concentration camps if the majority of the Nazi agenda saw it as being a good thing, a noble thing. 
Truth is not something that's determined by the majority. Truth is something that's laid down in the objective bedrock standard of the Word of God and so determined by Him and God's holy character. And we're skating on thin ice as a society. And Pandora's box has been opened in our society. And you know that we're living in the twilight zone kind of world when a company like Disney comes along and wants to frown on legislation that would keep certain ideas out of the classroom for children six years and younger, sexual ideologies that kids have no business hearing and being exposed to at such young ages. Where does this stuff come from? It comes from the evil one himself who wants to blind people to the truth. And so John, he's warning of this kind of thing here. He's saying, God's people don't, don't buy into this stuff. Don't be surprised when the world buys into it because the world doesn't know any better. But you ought to know better because of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. And so his warning here, it's, 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 it's practical. He's not giving this in the event of the remote possibility that these false ideas may just come up at some point. No, the rationale for his directive here in verse one, it's given at the end of verse one. What is, what is it that he's saying? Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. Now here's his rationale. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he's speaking to an immediate crisis that was happening in his own time, but it's one that's only been exacerbated with the passing of time. You and I need to be discerning because false teachers are spreading their false ideas. We can't afford to be gullible and believe everything that we hear from those who walk around as self-styled experts. We've gotta be on guard against those who are spreading lies We've got to filter all ideas through the lens of God's word. And you know, the Bible is full of warnings that God's people are to be on guard against false prophets. I don't have time to go into all of those, but Jesus, think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 15. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. In other words, false prophets are well-disguised. He didn't say that false prophets, you know, they're going to show up one day and they're going to knock on your door or they're going to come in casual conversation and introduce and say, hey, I'm a false prophet. No. Now, they don't operate that way. They don't come with fangs protruding and horns protruding and that kind of thing. No, they come in sheep's clothing. In other words, they don't appear to be a threat. Think about sheep. Sheep are cuddly. Sheep are sweet on the outside. I, I tend to be threatened by a lot of different animals, but I, a sheep is really not one that I've had nightmares about. Spiders, yes. Bears, yes. Wolves, yes. Sheep, no. The idea is there's this attractive quality to these false prophets that appeals to the flesh. 
And a major reason that they're so influential is that they speak to the things that we as humans by our very fallen nature desire to hear most. The passions of our flesh the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You lived in lostness, blindness, following the passions of your flesh. You didn't know any better. You were lost. By nature, we want to go our own way rather than God's way. We want to live by the authority of the self rather than the authority of the Creator. And so you think about man, he has this need within him, this, this idea that he's autonomous, he wants to do his own thing, nobody's going to tell me what to do, I'm going to go my own way, and then here you have the false prophet of secular culture who's ready and willing to tell you what you want to hear. And that describes our cultural moment, where feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness, well, this is the ultimate goal, judging, that's the ultimate goof. God, he's the ultimate guess who becomes whatever I want him to be. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul said would happen when he told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. The doctrine of demons. He says the same thing in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. And so false prophets, they, they come in disguise. False prophets are deadly. Jesus said they're like ravenous wolves on the inside and a wolf will, tell, will tear something to shreds. False prophets come and the evil one wants to use those false prophets to destroy people's spiritual lives. To destroy once vibrant, healthy churches. Think about, think about church buildings all across our country. You really saw this. In, in, you know, in a generation gone by, so many of the churches in New England, you think about Princeton Theological Seminary and places like that that were founded to train preachers, the Word of God. If you take Princeton University, which none of us would call a bastion for conservatism, you look at the shield of, Prin of Princeton University, you'll find on that shield an open Bible. And in Latin, the words Old and New Testament simply because of what that institution was founded upon and founded for. Well, what happened? Well, men came on the scene who said, you know, not so sure you can really trust this book. Not so sure you really need to preach this book the way that it is. Well, what about this idea? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And you had guys like Gresham Mackin, 1923, his book, Christianity and Liberalism, sounding the alarm on that kind of thing, and his denomination gave him the boot because of it. said, don't, don't trouble people. Don't be a troublemaker. And he sounded the alarm. That's the very alarm that the Apostle John is sounding right here in 1 John chapter 4. Nobody ever wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think I'm going to abandon the gospel today. No, it's always by degree. It's always by degree. And so here's the directive. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I imagine all of us are somewhat familiar with the story of the Odyssey by the Greek poet Homer, written in the 8th century B.C., but it tells the story of a well-respected warrior. His name is Odysseus, and he's returning home to the island of Ithaca from the Trojan War. It was a war he never wanted to fight to begin with, but not because he was afraid to fight. No, his concern stems from a prophecy predicting that if he fights, his journey home will be a long one, will be a difficult one. He doesn't want to leave his family for that long amount of time, and so what does he do? To try to avoid the conflict, he pretends to be crazy. Well, it doesn't work. He ends up fighting in the Trojan War, during which he becomes a hero. Now, if you're familiar with the story, on his journey home, uh, Odysseus is warned about some enchanting creatures known as the Sirens. In Greek mythology, the Sirens were strange creatures that had the appearance of women and the bodies of birds, just weird creatures. But they lived on this island, and with this irresistible charm of song, they lured passing sailors to their destruction on the jagged rocks surrounding their island. And they sang so sweetly that all who sailed near their home there in the sea were fascinated and drawn close only to be destroyed. Well, when Odysseus passes that enchanted spot, he has himself tied to the mast of his ship, and he tells all of his travel companions to put beeswax in their ears so that they might not hear the bewitching songs of the sirens. Now, when it comes to avoiding ideas and seductive ideologies, I guess that's one way to go through life. You can, you can stop up your ears and and yet, there still is a better way, I believe. The sirens show up in another story from Greek mythology, Jason and the Argonauts, but Jason, he chose a better way. He took the Greek singer and musician named Orpheus along with him. And Orpheus was a magnificent singer. He was, he was a magnificent musician who played the lyre. And so as they're passing the spot, he takes out his lyre and plays a song so clear and so loud and it drowned out the sound of those fatal voices of the sirens. Now, folks, listen. The enemy's sirens are playing their enchanting music in our generation. And your children are listening to so many of those siren songs on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and their peer groups and social media phenomenon and all of that and all of these siren songs come at us from all sides through cultural messaging, social media, the ideas of cultural prophets. And the best way to break the charm of these alluring voices, it's not simply to shut out the music by plugging up our ears, by retreating into our holy huddles on Sunday and refusing to be salt and to be light as the people of God. No, I think a better way is to have our hearts and our lives filled with the much sweeter music of the Spirit and the Scriptures so that the lies of the evil one will have no power over us. And you know what? We've got a more nobler and sweeter song to sing and a message to declare to a world that's awash 
in the chaos of lies, don't we? Let's stand for prayer this morning. Spiritually discerning Christianity. You say, Pastor, how do I begin cultivating spiritual discernment in my life as a believer? Well, listen to me. Number one, realize you've been given the Holy Spirit as someone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. And receive the gift of God's Spirit. The moment you come to faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to live within you, and God puts within you as a believer an inward lie detector when it comes to truth and error. But then I think about your relationship with your Bible, a life saturated in the Scriptures, a mind that's not conformed to the way that this world thinks, but a, but a mind that's being transformed and renewed day by day as the truth of God's Word washes over your life. We need it, don't we? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to lead us in prayer. We're going to sing here in just a moment. If you've never been saved, I want to invite you to slip out of the seat where you've been and come pray with one of our pastors. We would love to lead you to Christ and talk to you about baptism. But Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray that we be spiritually discerning as the people of God. Lord, to be careful that we don't believe every spirit, but we test the spirits to see whether or not they come from God. That we not embrace every ideology or trend simply because it may be the cultural thing to do. But Lord, may we filter it through the lens of your holy word. I pray for our children. I pray for families that we might raise godly sons and daughters in the midst of such a decadent age. And Lord, use us as your mouthpiece to be a prophetic voice crying out to bear witness to the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen.